What's happening in two days? Election. Exactly. We're in a series. It's called Decision 22. The focus has not been on politics, nor will it be. The focus is on decisions that we make that affect our lives. But I thought long and hard about it, about doing a political talk the Sunday before the election, and I decided to do it, and so today I am going to talk about politics. A number of people warned me and said, why would you do that? Because I'm dumb? Or because I'm brave? Or because I believe the Bible can help us understand some principles for our personal politics? That's really why I did it. Some, you know, the old, what's the old saying? There's two things you don't talk about, religion, politics. So I'm going to put the two together for a real volatile mix today, and we're going to talk about both of them and how they work together. See, in my teen years, after my father remarried, they both got into politics. And what I saw over time was it become a narcotic, as people would get so addicted to the rush of political activity. Soon the focus would shift from a compassionate concern to a callous cause. The focus then become partisan politics. Our party, we had to win, where people and compassion really became secondary issues. It was all about the winning. It was also during these teen years when I saw this taking place that we first started going to church. And I saw a lot of churches that they worked with get involved. But most of the time when they got involved, it was with their own political agenda. It's almost as if during that time, it's when the moral majority really sprung up. It's almost as if they were trying to usher in this church state happening. Can I tell you something? It didn't work for Constantine in the fourth century, if you study church history, it didn't work for the Crusades. It didn't work for the moral majority. I believe there are probably some good things that came about from it in that it raised the awareness of Christ's followers on the importance of engaging in the process and getting out to vote. But it also, because of the way that it was done, it produced a lot of backlash against Christians because they really did feel like we were so... Um, uh, so trying so hard to really force and to legislate Christianity on our nation. I believe politics are critical and important. But hear me. Our focus is to make disciples teach the Bible in applicable ways that is relevant to people's lives. And we're going to teach through books of the Bible, personalities of the Bible, everything from finances to marriage to morals to time management, and yes, even to politics as I made the decision to do that today. When I became a pastor, because of that experience growing up and reading about Billy Graham, I decided that I was not, I decided I would not pastor a church or be a pastor that threw my hat into the ring for any person politically or any political party. My responsibility, what I would do is to encourage any people that I led, be engaged in, the, uh, in politics if you want to be. I believe we need strong Christian people who can go in and be societal influencers that can shape culture. I would encourage anybody to do that. And I will always encourage you at every election to make sure that you're registered 
to vote. But the church, loved ones, this church exists to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And too often, our political positions and our presentation on political matters have become roadblocks to keep people from the cross of Christ. So all of this means what? Well, I am, we're not going to endorse any candidates or any parties unless they promise to give us huge sums of money for some kind of faith initiative. Then, no, I'm just kidding. You know I'm kidding, right? No, we're not going to endorse people or parties. And while I'm committed to politics and voting, the reason I don't do that is a couple of things. Number one, I see the merits of both parties. Both parties have some significant biblical underpinnings, whether they would ever call it that or not, but they have some significant biblical underpinnings that I believe bring balance to the process. That if you didn't have one of the parties, you would miss out on these things. If you didn't have this party, you would miss out on these things. Too often, what does everybody do? They, they get so engaged in their, in their party and think their party is so pure and perfect and right that they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the other one. Secondly, if I or we endorsed one party or political person over another publicly, some of you, when I talk about moral issues that many people see as political issues, you would begin to hear what I say through a political grid. And I don't want that. Because understand most of the, many of the political issues that we deal with and that are big deals today, those are really have major moral underpinnings to them. Uh, but, but people want to assign them with a political agenda. Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. In John chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, 15, it says this. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, he fed 5,000. They started going, whoa, look at this. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That's true. He did. But now Jesus, he kind of gets his, his intent up. And he says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, which is how a lot of people see the, memorial, the moral majority and a lot of the church, how they do it, do it by force. What did Jesus do? It says he withdrew to a mountain by himself. See, the people that responded to Jesus at first thought he was the solution to their problems and that he was going to bring in a whole new political area. And so, era. And so Jesus, so people started following him, believing he was going to be the king of Israel and kick out the Romans. Jesus said, stop, whoa, hold the presses. That's not what I'm here for. He said, I came to redeem people from their sin, and I came not to establish an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom that transcends politics, culture, borders, languages. But hear me, the day is coming if you read the book of Revelation, and while so much of it may be hard to understand, as you read it, there is going to come a day when, the, when all of the world's kingdoms will un, under, uh, come under the King Jesus. Revelation eleven fifteen says this, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Why? Because then he shall reign forever and ever and ever. It's coming, but it's not now. 
It's not yet. So as America, as we get ready to cross another election finish line, I want to look at some principles that I hope will just kind of help anchor your soul in the midst of some crazy political swells and things going on around you and you hear so much stuff. Now, I know there's always, there's a few Creeksiders who eat, sleep, drink, breathe, and smoke politics. But this is what I know. They do not inhale when they do. (laughs) So we're going to get right after it. Some have asked me, who are you voting for? Or maybe even some of you would wonder today, just curiosity. But I got to tell you, if I told you, then I'd have to shoot you. And that's illegal under our strict constructionist view of the Constitution. So I can't do that. But of course, you know what? Depending on who we elect, that could change too. And depending on who they appoint is to the Supreme Court, lest I digress. But uh, let's get to the five points. Uh, number one, remember, blood is thicker than water. Growing up, growing up, I heard this quite frequently in my house. I heard it on my sports teams. What were they really trying to communicate? This is number one, family, the people that are around you. For some of you, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? Oh my gosh, my family, that's, yeah. And for some of you, it brings you great joy. But like a family, and the Bible calls us a family. That's one of the, the, the pictures and metaphors of the church. We are delightfully diversified congregation. And I rejoice in that. We have people on both sides and in between on the political aisles. Matter of fact, I know there are some homes where people are on opposite sides, and it makes for a wonderfully uh, delicious and delightful dynamic tension at this time of year. But this is what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29. You are all sons, daughters of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourselves with Jesus Christ. Now, because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And I wonder that if Paul had been writing this to the 21st century church, if he wouldn't include, and some of you are Republican, and some of you are of Democrat, because there is a fairly large chasm between the two groups, especially I've seen it in the last 20 years. It just continues to grow. In the, 20, in the first century when this was written, there were huge divisions in the ancient world. And Paul is saying that when we come to Christ, these divisions really should disappear. While we honor diversity while living in unity, that happens simply because we live under and come under the banner of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may go, well, pastor, that really kind of sounds utopian. Yeah, I I know, but Paul's writing this to the church and has the greatest hope. And he's reminding us that our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And then I think secondly, as you read the rest of the scripture, what you'll see is our second allegiance is to our family, our blood. And then right after that, really, there is this allegiance that comes to the church, the people, the blood-bought people around us. And then somewhere down the line, you can make it your political allegiance to your party. 
But as I told you, I've seen many people who were their political allegiance almost trump their family relationships. And if you disagreed with them, didn't believe, or line up in the same party as they did, man, it caused significant troubles. So why is this so important? How can we have unity in this? Because of the blood. Blood is thicker than water. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, the bloodline that runs through everyone that is a part of God's family. Why? It's thicker than water. See, we can have our differences, and we can, a lot of us will see issues differently, from healthcare to welfare to war. We're going to see them differently, but we ought never to allow our love to be diminished because we value more highly our political party or our political positions or our political leaders. And you see a lot of people really get kind of frustrated and divided over that. Jesus, hear me, Jesus is bigger than the Republican Party and he's bigger than the Democratic Party. Second thing is, remember God's, remember God's and our kingdom is spiritual. Listen, we're citizens of the United States. I celebrate that. I've been able to see a, a number of different countries, and I can't tell you how proud I am to be an American. You talk to people that have come here and become citizens, the reason they do it is because it's such a wonderful, wonderful democracy, republic. It's, a, it's an incredible place to live. And Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, 20 through 21, he says this, but we are citizens of heaven. He's reminding that church, doesn't matter what goes on here, we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives and we eagerly are waiting for him to return as our savior. As you look at history, as a country can't deny, you cannot deny that we've done some really great things, can you? And you can't deny that we've really done some not so good things. But we are a blessed nation, and hear me, while I do not believe we are a Christian nation, I am convinced that God has great purpose and potential for the United States. Collectively, we have an amazing potential to do amazing things. But never forget, as Christ followers, our first and foremost We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are part of a spiritual kingdom where our prayer every day should be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now some of you may still be thinking, hmm, I wonder where he's going to end up on this. You might be looking for some political clues or guessing, second guessing who I'm going to vote for are where I stand. And some of the things I'll be sharing here in the next few minutes could be interpreted one way or another. But it might just be a ninja pastor who's kind of doing some shaky moves or just trying to play some mind tricks on you. So follow closely. See, I'm convinced based on the Bible and God's heart for his creation, loved ones, listen, that fighting injustice, alleviating suffering, caring for the sick, helping the poor, and fighting for the right to life are not only political agendas, they are God's agenda. God cares about everything from AIDS to orphans to the poor and to the environment. Why? 
He made them all. He created them all. And that is a spiritual truth, not a political statement or agenda. Because the Bible is clear on all of those things. If the church was really doing its job, really caring about what God cares about, I am convinced that the church would have a much bigger hand in the social development and oversight of our people in the United States if the church was really doing what it was supposed to. But the government does everything now because the church has dropped the ball. Again, some of you think, oh my pastor, again, you're just, you think there's going to be some kind of utopia and you probably believe in unicorns. I don't. I just believe the church, loved ones, if we really got out of our blessed assurance, got off our blessed assurance, could do so much more and begin to live more responsibly in the culture, in the city, in the community that God has placed us. But the church is so focused on keeping the doors open, so, so focused on having these good times together, little potlucks and all these little things, which are bad, but when they become the focus, they move you from the mission of making a difference in the kingdom of God. Well, let's just let the politicians do it. And then we'll sit back and complain because the government does too much. There's a church in Portland. They started an initiative called the Advent Conspiracy. How many of you kind of get tired of the commercialization of Christmas. I love Christmas. I will spend, even charge a little bit. I will eat big. We will decorate our home probably in the next couple of weeks. We'll do all of that. And all of that for me is a way of redeeming Christmas because I just love what it speaks of so much. And growing up, we didn't have good Christmas, so now I say, I'm going to have a good Christmas. But I'm, I'm really kicking around this idea of what if we challenge Creekside to do Christmas? What if I challenge Terry to do Christmas differently this year? This church in Portland, what they did is they challenged their people and said, enjoy Christmas, but just cut back. Instead of spending so much on yourself and your family, and maybe trying to appease all your family members, just tell them. We're cutting way back, and whatever we would usually spend for Christmas, we're going to cut that, and then whatever we would usually spend, we're going to save that, and we're going to give it. This church in Portland, you know what they did? They did this for a couple of years, and they ended up giving the city of Portland, Oregon, they walked into the mayor's office and said, here's a check for $500,000. Use it to make our city better because we believe in our city. Now, I'm, I'm not quite ready to just give a big check to our city <laughs> without some kind of we want to help, tell us what you're going to do kind of thing. But can you imagine the statement that would make if we went into our city and we said, this is what Creekside Church has done because we believe in this community so much. You know what that church was saying? You know what we'd be saying? We want to be a part of the solution, not part of the ongoing problem. And we will put our money where our mouth is. See, many of you here, you've probably got a litmus test on one or two 
political, moral issues that you focus on when you get ready to vote. I do. There's a few things that are just kind of non-negotiables that I just got to say, you know something, this is critical. And to the best that I can, I will vote based on those issues. Democrat, Republican, Tea Party, Green Party, the birthday party. Listen, I don't care. I'll vote on it based on those things. Here's what frustrates me is people get so upset and they write others off due to issues sometimes. Remember JFK? He was almost wrote off. Why? He was a Catholic. Jimmy Carter was almost wrote off. Why? Well, he was a Baptist. Obama was almost wrote off because he was African-American. You know, I don't still know if we know if he's really a Muslim. And his birth certificate, boy, you know, let's get that thing out. And some will write off Romney because he's a Mormon. Do you realize how difficult it is today in our thinking cognitive culture to find one person that you can ideologically line up with down the line? The key is sometimes is you've got to find the key issues that you're willing to stand together on and then not excommunicate the other people, other leaders, or the people around you because they don't agree with you. See, if you're anything like me, sometimes I am shocked that not everybody sees everything as I do. Do you ever feel that? I mean, they just don't get it. Uh, but this is, this is what I remember. Everybody has the right to be wrong. So I'm just going to do it, you know, because that's how we think, isn't it? If I didn't think it was right, I wouldn't do it. But there's a lot of thinking people that may not align or agree with you. Here's my point. I want to be a church. I want to be a people that are called to be a part of the solution. I want to be a church that's blazing new trails of blessing where we continue to walk into our schools and say, how can we help and bless you? Where maybe we do, we walk into the council's chamber one night and we get to say, here we are, what can Creekside Church do to be a blessing? And it's going to take us to volunteer our time, to give our time, to give our resources, like in our harvest offering in a couple of weeks. Hear me, look at me. I said this last service, I cannot not say it here. I'm so glad you're here. But I don't ever want the movement of what God is doing here that it would become a mission to a movement and turn into a mausoleum. Because that's what happens with churches with movements in Christianity. You know what happens? It's because the next generation doesn't step up. And I want to tell you, I just want to look you in the eye, every one of you, I care about you. But if you come to this church and you just want to show up for the show and not grow, it's not going to be pretty. I am going to challenge every person in this church to be involved in some ministry at this church, on this campus at some point. And I'm going to challenge every person to be involved in some kind of missional outreach where we're investing our lives in our community. We are not going to be a church where we just go, come for the show, but never have to grow. Come for the show, but never have to get involved. 
And I understand there's totally reasons why some people right now at different times can't, you know, you've got 12 kids running around. And I mean, there's reasons. I understand that. But the church is filled with too many people who just want to come and enjoy. I can't let that happen here. There's too many people that are far from God. And I don't say this, it sounds negative, but there's too many churches that aren't engaging the community to make a difference. So we're going to. We will continue to do what we're doing. And I'm going to continue to call and challenge the people that have never done anything or very little here. Get into the rodeo. Saddle up. There's lots to do around here. And we've got to raise up new generations of ministries and ministers. We've got a lot of people that are still doing it. Takes time, takes energy, takes effort, takes resources. And you're going to hear me talking a lot about that. Because I don't want us to move as I kind of, in this, kind of moving just toward a little bit of apathy where we're just kind of enjoying everything. And we're forgetting we got a mission. Jesus' mission to be a part of his kingdom and what he wants to do in Martinez and the East Bay. Let me just kind of put a little dream on your radar. I don't know if it's God or if it's pizza. But I've, I've, been, I've been driving downtown, I think, about four or five times in the last few weeks. Every time I go down there, I have this idea, kind of this, like I say, I don't know, it might be, you know, food or, or God, but I thought, what, what, what if we started a church downtown, an extension of Creekside? I know we're only five minutes, you know, 10 minutes away almost from anybody driving, but what if we just extended our influence to the downtown and started a church down there? What would you think of that? What if we started to really leverage aftermath where we challenged people that could come in and really teach and mentor our students, get more people involved, where not only are we dealing with maybe some of the, um, you know, the, the academic stuff, but what if we were able to, you know, maybe teach them how to cook, how to sew, how to do some general homemaking things that so many kids don't get these days? What if we did that with parents? If we offered parenting classes for three weeks or we offered financial classes for three weeks, what if we really said we're going we're to use Aftermath as an extension ministry of this church? You know what that's going to take, don't you? It's going to take your involvement. And we have so many gifted people in here. But if everybody did something once a month, you'd be amazed at the impact we could make. And that's why we're doing this 40 days of prayer is to begin to get people to focus on what God wants and we bring our individual and collective hearts to God to say, God, what could you potentially do in us and through us in this season? Are there new opportunities out there? Are there new, are there new strategies that we can um, look at? Are there new initiatives that we need to involve ourselves in? 
I believe politics is a very noble calling, and we need Christians to view that as their mission fields. Because God has strategically positioned people throughout history. In the Old Testament, remember Joseph in Egypt to help Egypt during a famine. Daniel in Babylon, he served under five pagan kings to help make a difference, to protect his people, to speak in to the leadership there. Queen Esther in Persia. Hear me, it's not about Romney's kingdom. It's not about Obama's kingdom that's gonna be coming on Wednesday. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ being advanced on earth. And it's his agenda, his mission, his priorities. And hear me, it's you and me as the church that become the vehicle from which it happens. Or we can still sit back and go, well, I voted. Now we'll let the government take care of it. No, no. We're going to lead and be the church that makes a difference. Second thing is, the third thing, remember, be careful with judgmentalism. This is an important principle from the scriptures, but it can be difficult to explain and apply. There are Bible issues that are explicitly, clearly black and white, right or wrong. Now, when you turn something that is black and white into something that is gray, the term that is used for that is relativism. That means there are things that are clearly right and wrong, black and white, but we kind of look at them and go, well, you know, this situation, and it becomes relative to your feelings, your thinking, and your situations. We live in an era of political correctness, don't we? Did you know that we live in a time where it is wrong to say something is wrong? Can I tell you? That's wrong. And I'm going to tell you something else. It happens in the church on clear biblical issues. This is wrong. Well, but you know, Pastor, are you sure? Well, let me see. What does it say here? Well, yeah, but you know, I just got this bleeding heart. I just care so much. Well, really? Then care for truth. See, I believe we need to stand our political ground on issues of right and wrong and engage for what's right and wrong. If it's black and white, we need to be black and white. But how we do it is with a spirit and attitude of grace and truth. But we also must recognize, loved ones, there are gray issues. There are issues in the Bible that, that are not explicit. Here's the problem is when we try and turn them into black and white or wrong, right and wrong issues, then we get into this thing called legalism. Both of these, relativism, relativism over here where it's kind of an anything goes based on feeling and the need of the moment or legalism over here that takes all of these feeling things and says this is right and this is wrong even though the Bible doesn't clearly say it's right or wrong. Both of these are so destructive to faith and to relationships. So Romans 14 says this, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Don't judge. Don't look down on. So what's a disputable matter? It's a gray area where the Bible is not explicit, so we have to learn to give biblical <coughs> excuse me, latitude. We talk, talk about this in class 101, where we understand in this church we have some non-negotiable doctrines. We have some doctrinal hills that we will die on, things like Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sin. 
He was raised again on the third day. He's coming back again for his church. Those are issues that we just, we're not going to, we're going to be unequivocating on. But there's other issues like eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Listen, they've been arguing about that since Matthew chapter 7. That's true. We argue about, well, do you believe when's the rapture going to happen? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? I don't know. Pan it out. It's all going to pan out. It's going to work according to Jesus' time. And we're not going to, you know, we're going to let people have a lot of, you know, whatever. Another gray area. Well, should we sing that third hymn of, that third verse of the hymn or not? I think we should. And the fourth. Okay, we will or we won't. It's not a big deal. Or what about this one? Contemporary Christian music versus traditional Christian music. Can I tell you, I like them both. But I'm more concerned about reaching the next generation than I am the generation that's passing. Because the church is only one generation from being removed. And the diminishing law of returns is so exponential that by the time people get my age, they're not going to come to Christ unless God's really working in them and they're open. So we're going to make sure that we're always reaching back so that we have a generation so that this church is not going to die. But we can argue about those. And I really don't care. That's why we have all these different churches. Some are very contemporary. Some are very traditional. Hopefully we try and mix it up as much as we can. But we're not going to argue and divide over it. Someone said it this way, in in, in the essentials, we will have unity. In the non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love. That's not just a good theological maxim. That's a great political maxim. Some define essentials and non-essentials differently. That's why we have different churches. There are political issues that God-fearing, Christ-loving, Bible-believing people will uh, uh, will not agree on until Jesus returns. And even then in heaven, people will probably argue, I was right, <laughs> you were wrong. Do you think in heaven there's going to be a Presbyterian section? A Baptist section? A Pentecostal section? No! So don't let it become divisive down here. Over time, I've grown to appreciate the people who've devoted themselves to making a difference in the political realm and have totally different political persuasions than I do because they really believe what they're doing is right. A great lesson. Not everybody, loved ones, is going to be as passionate about the things you are passionate about. Often we want everyone to care about the things we care about as much as we care about them. That's why every, you know, people will come to me and our staff and say, well, we need to do this. I was just, oh, we need to do this. And this is what I learned. Okay, good. I'll help you, but get going on it. Oh, no, pastor, we want you to do it. No, I don't have time. I'm not passionate about that. I'm passionate about the things that I'm doing. And if you're passionate about that, then I'll do everything I can to blow wind into your sails, but you're going to have to do it. Because, see, we need different people who care deeply about health care, about the right to life, about education, about the environment, fill in the blank. 
And I've learned to care and appreciate for people who care deeply, deeply about a variety of issues that I may not care about. I don't believe, we don't believe uniformity equals unity when it comes to the non-essentials. We can disagree. We talk about this in 101. You don't have to believe everything about this church that we believe, except we need to make sure we come together on the essentials. And when it comes to disputable matters, matters of conscience, we always make room for people to disagree agreeably. Fifth thing is, uh, fourth thing is remember to be part of the solution. Don't be a part of the problem. In my in-state class last week, we were, we were looking, we were uh, kind of doing a flyby on the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it made me think of our political atmosphere now. Numbers 14, uh, 26 to 28 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, I have heard the complaints and the grumblings of the Israelites. Has complaining and grumbling ever helped or changed the situation that you're in? Ever. Come on. Oh, it made me feel good about it. Okay, but did it change it? No. See, these Israelites were always complaining and grumbling. As a matter of fact, they had an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years going around the same mountain. And finally, God said, I'm tired of this. And he says, this generation is going to die in the desert and never see the promises that God has for them. There are people in church, loved ones, you will never see God's promises for you, your life, your marriage, your finances, because all you do is complain and grumble. You stay on the problem side and never get to the solution side. You blame, you make excuses, you have your reasons. And when you do that, it just leads to a dead end where you're circling around the same mountains for years. Now, politically, be part of the solution, not the problem. And how does it start? You need to vote. Because if you don't vote, don't complain. And even if you do vote, don't complain. And if the person you vote for doesn't get elected, don't complain. Don't spend the next four years complaining. It does no good. This week, we're all going to go to the polls, hopefully to cast our votes. And unless there's a lot of hanging chads or some other kind of problem, we're going to wake up on November 7th, and we're going to know who the next president's going to be. If your candidate wins, go ahead and celebrate in your home, not in your office, and rub it into everybody. But if your candidate wins, celebrate. If your candidate is, is uh, Obama and he wins, then do a little shake and bake shuffle. My man won. Yahoo. If your man is Romney and he wins, then do a little bit of Romney riff, you know? Celebrate. Enjoy it. But don't rub it in. But if your candidate loses it might be a perfect time to actually learn to obey what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because I hear people all the time, they feel persecuted by the political system. No. Love and pray. On November 7th, half of, of us will have the opportunity to practice this verse. 
But here's the good news. If your candidate lost, you'll probably be more spiritual in four years than the other people. Why? Because you'll be on your knees. Oh God, four years from now, bring on our man. And you'll get to love people even when you disagree with them. But on a serious note, what if we quit complaining and use that time to start praying? Do you think that would at least help change your heart and the hearts around you toward the political system and help our country? Yeah, I think it would do a lot more than the grumbling and complaining. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, you pray for your leaders and those in authority. Last thing is remember to give respect. Romans 13 there, it's a whole great passage to unpack, but the key word out of there, it says respect those in authority. Why? Because God has placed them there. Let me read to you Titus 3, 1 and 2, a little abbreviated. It says, remind the people, that's what I'm doing, to be subject to the rulers and the authorities, to be obedient, not when it comes to things against God, but generally, to be ready to do whatever is good. Oh, get this, to slander no one to be peaceable and considerate and to show humility toward all men. Some are thinking, yeah, but you know, this is the 21st century and Paul wasn't writing to us. No, you're right. He was writing at a time when they lived under Roman rule. He had a few brushes with the law. As a matter of fact, he had been legally flogged and almost killed. He lived under one of the worst Caesars, the most debauched antichrist leaders of all time, Nero. And yet he wrote those words, not only to the church, to the Roman Christians, but then he wrote it to Titus, who led a wretched group of people. He didn't hold a vendetta against the government or Rome. He didn't, he didn't have near the freedoms that we enjoy under the Bill of Rights, yet that's what he says to do. Paul says we need to respect those in authorities. I understand, listen loved ones, we've had some presidents that are hard to respect. The reasons can vary from uh, sexual impropriety to some people who got really riffed about his, one of our presidents uh, uh, mispronunciation of words. Listen, joke about it, I, I don't care, it's, but do it in good taste. Don't get malicious. Don't get mean. But we need to show respect for the president of our United States. Whether we disagree or whether we agree, he's the president and we need to be praying for him. Loved ones, Christ followers need to grapple and learn how to grapple with and understand to respect those that we have deep and significant disagreements with or and or who have disappointed us deeply. Somewhere along the line, too many Christians have caved into a form of behavior that legalizes tearing people down, ridiculing people, believing the worst about people, rumor-mongering, even hating. Yeah, even hating people we have political differences with or who disappoint us, they still matter to God and they are people that Christ Jesus came and died for. There was a time when former President Bill Clinton, 
He spoke at a church leadership gathering for uh, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Leadership Summit. And when pastors and church leaders who go to this, along with other secular leaders as well, but predominantly church and lay leaders, when they found out he was coming, they called and screamed and yelled loud insults at the church staff who were working the phones. They blew off mean-spirited, hate-inspired, unchristlike emails that attacked and shamelessly admitted that they hated the man. One, pa- one guy wrote to Bill Hybels and said, I cannot believe you would ever have him on your campus. I hate him. I would never support him, and I'm not coming. Signed, the Reverend So-and-So. I- I've, I've had Creeksiders who when I've done things like today or where I've prayed for a pastor by name, excuse me, a president by name, I'll go to the door and they'll come up to me and they go, Pastor, I hate that president. Why would you ever pray for him in church? When I hear his name, the last thing I want to hear is his name in church. You're kidding, right? Oh, no. How could you pray for him? You're kidding, right? See, this is the subjective, kind of relevant uh, uh, idea, black and white thinking. The Bible clearly says you pray for your leaders. What if you don't like them? Well, I won't pray for them. The Bible says pray for them. Question, when did Jesus change the hate rule? I'm serious. Did this pastor, did these people get an addendum to their Bibles that I missed? Because I thought the rule was no hatred. We work hard to love people. We hate sin. I thought the rule was we love our enemies. We work at forgiving them 70 times 7. Ephesians 4.29 says, don't let an unwholesome word come out of your mouth, only words that build up. Well, does that mean I can't disagree strongly with people or politicians? Absolutely not. But you do it in a spirit that as a Christ follower, it isn't attacking, sarcastic, cynical, critical, or mean-spirited just because it's politics. The same Bible rules apply for politicians and politics as it does for the church, as it does for your office. God looks at this thing holistically. And God, listen, I know that God will bring you to places where you'll have to face people and then you'll have to look in the mirror to see if you are God's man or God's woman who is able to learn to disagree agreeably and not move into guerrilla warfare and talk everybody down behind the scenes, on Facebook, wherever. You can, we will, respect and pray for the office even if we totally disagree with it. And we will make our stands where we need to in a God-honoring, people-building way. When this election is over, guess what? It's going to be 1,460 days until the next one. Let's be part of the solution, not the problem. Let's serve, let's care, let's pray, and let's help solve problems And do as one person said. What's more important than how we vote on November 6th is how we live on November 5th and November 7th. We vote every day 
with our lives. We vote every day with our feet, with our hands, with our lips, and with our wallets. Ultimate change does not just happen one day every four years. Is that an amen or what? Amen? Amen? Okay, the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a great day. You're loved.